with Euclid together. Euclid's Elements, one of the most important and influential works in human history. Who wouldn't want to read that? Euclid alone has looked on beauty bare, as the poets said. So let's do this uh, a couple of episodes. We go through Euclid's Elements, uh, book one. And, well, here's a twist already. Let's read it backwards. Or not uh, quite, but it's a good idea to start at the end. Book one of the Elements. It ends with the Pythagorean theorem and the converse of the Pythagorean theorem. It's uh, not a murder mystery, you know, it won't spoil the fun to know the ending. I will explain why I think it's a good idea to do it this way, to read it backwards. It has to do with appreciating the refined goals of the elements. It's a very subtle work in ways that are easy to miss. So I'm going to use this idea of starting at the end as a way to highlight uh, a couple of things to keep in mind in that regard, so that we're sure to uh, uh, value the, the subtleties of this work. I will also uh, liven up the, the technical Euclid stuff with some fun stories, stuff that is related to the Euclid material. Uh, as we trace uh, Euclid, we also do a couple of tangents with related historical material, like, for instance, today speaking about the Pythagorean theorem, here are some fun follow-up stories. Did the Egyptians use the Pythagorean theorem, for instance, to build the pyramids? They have got the angles just right and everything. Uh, maybe uh, let's figure that out. And I will also play a clip of uh, Robocop, who had something to say about the origins of the Pythagorean theorem, believe it or not. So that's coming up, as it were. And I will try to do that for all of the parts of the elements. You know, you have a serious discussion over the finer points, technical points, and then also some related uh, entertaining explorations, uh, cultural links of the various parts of the elements. So... Well, uh, let's do that. It's such a rich work, Euclid's Elements, that it allows for both of these, you know, it's richly rewarding in all of these dimensions. Let's do it. Here we go. My first goal, then, is to outline the mindset with which you must approach Euclid's text. If you are a young person, you may look at Euclid's Elements and say, yeah, yeah, it's, it's triangles and stuff. I saw all of that in high school. You know, we had this textbook, it had proofs, just like this thing by Euclid. It's pretty much the same thing. It's A, B, C, triangles, and uh, theorem, proof, whatever. Same same story, you know. No, that is not the case. This is like listening to Mozart and going, yeah, yeah, music, you know, I've heard music before. It's the same thing. No, no, no. Forget it. There's a world of difference. Euclid is on an, a whole other level of sophistication than some crappy uh, textbook that you read in high school. You wouldn't know it just by looking at the text, though. It looks pretty much the same as any other geometry text, a triangle, ABC, blah, blah, blah. It's it's like uh, you you can compare it with musical scores. That's has, You can say the same thing about them. They all look the same. If you just glance at the pages, you can't tell Mozart from whatever uh, hack, you know. They all, uh, uh, superficially, they're the same, but we must look deeper to appreciate the subtlety and genius of Euclid. The text itself doesn't spell this stuff out. Like, you know, a Mozart uh, quartet or something does not have, a, you know, a narrator uh, telling you what's so great about it. But great works reward reflection. The more you study Euclid, the more you interrogate the text, the more you puzzle over its oddities, the more you come to appreciate the mastery that went into crafting everything just right. Euclid knew exactly what he was doing. His work is orders of magnitude more sophisticated than other superficially similar works. 
in this genre. The exercise of reading backwards is an angle that we can use to start uh, getting a handle on this. If we read Euclid from cover to cover in the order it's written, then we get the strictly bottom-up perspective. We start with the most basic things and gradually we get to higher and higher levels of sophistication. That's how mathematics is typically written down, and with good reason. But the way mathematics comes into being is much more bi-directional. Mathematics grows like a tree, it's often said. As the branches extend, so do the roots. Starting a Euclid adventure uh, with the Pythagorean theorem, it's a way to make us think about this. Of course, when we read Euclid's proof of the Pythagorean theorem, we find that it's based on earlier results. So you might say, well, obviously you have to have read those earlier things first before you can understand the proof. Well, it's a bit simplistic. You could also say, actually, you need to look at the Pythagorean theorem first because only then can you understand what the purpose is of those earlier propositions. So from a pure, purely logical perspective, you have to read it linearly from start to finish. But to understand the meaning and purpose of the logical constructions, you have to take a step back and interrogate the text from other angles as well. For a, if, if you, all you want is a kind of dogmatic understanding, then it is enough to read it linearly, to parse the logical steps uh, like a machine. But for a critical, independent understanding, then you want to not only verify the logic, but also see how one could arrive at such logical constructions organically. And this goes for any formal mathematical uh, text still to this day, or maybe even more so today than ever. The definitions and axioms are the starting points of the, the way mathematics is written, but often they are almost the end product of the actual creative uh, thought process. Only after you've figured out uh, the hard parts of your theory do you know what the, the starting points need to be. Or at least there's this kind of interaction, a back-and-forth negotiation between the top and the bottom of the theory. Each part is adapted to the other. So that's one reason to read Euclid's elements backwards. It's a reason that applies to any formal mathematical theory, because uh, they all have this element of bidirectionality. Actually, uh, geometry might be among the more unidirectional formal mathematical theories in how it was conceived, because of the, the results of geometry were known in great detail uh, long before they were formalized. The tree came before the roots, so to speak, if we use that metaphor. And here's another way of visualizing it. Think of the Pythagorean theorem as the apex of a pyramid. The proof reveals which lower, more foundational stones it rests on. And these stones, in turn, rest on other stones, and so on. So something has to be the bedrock that is considered solid enough not to need any further uh, support beneath it. Euclid's elements, it can be read in two directions. It can be read as a way of building up more and more elaborate uh, structure on top of a solid foundation, or it can be read as a way of reducing advanced results to their basic components. So when we read the proof of the Pythagorean theorem, one of the perspectives we should use is to think of it as a kind of boiling down this fairly advanced result, the Pythagorean theorem, into more basic ones. And that will help us uh, uh, appreciate the purpose and achievement of these more fundamental parts of the elements when we uh, get to those in our reading adventure. History vindicates this way of reading the elements. By the time Euclid wrote the elements, the theorems themselves, like the Pythagorean theorem, had been known for hundreds or maybe even thousands of years. Even uh, proving the theorem wasn't all that new either. There were plenty of proofs of the Pythagorean theorem kicking around. Euclid probably knew 
I don't know, uh, two dozen proofs maybe of the Pythagorean theorem. Well, several, surely. And we shouldn't think of Euclid as saying, hey guys, I discovered some things about triangles and stuff. Check out this book uh, where I explain how I came up with these theorems. No, no, no. That's not at all what Euclid is doing. We must understand that when we read the elements, we're way beyond that. If you just wanted to uh, convince a random person that the Pythagorean theorem is true, there are much better proofs than Euclid's. Simpler ones, more intuitive proofs based on simple diagrams. If all you want is a psychologically compelling argument that the Pythagorean theorem is true, then there are uh, way better options than Euclid. And Euclid knew that, and he chose his proof very deliberately, because it's the best proof for his purposes, namely the purpose of carefully analyzing how the truth of the Pythagorean theorem can be broken down into smaller truths, and more generally to do the same thing for all the truths of geometry in a comprehensive and systematic manner. That is the goal of Euclid's element. So the proof of the Pythagorean theorem, it isn't so much about showing that the theorem is true. That's way too elementary. No, the purpose rather is showing what its ultimate foundations are. So here's another metaphor for this. Think of a mathematical theorem as a dish that you cook in a restaurant. The Pythagorean theorem is like a soup, let's say. You can whip it up very quickly with store-bought ingredients, like stock cubes or microwaving something from a can and stuff like that. Euclid, he doesn't do that store-bought stuff. He's going to do everything from scratch. I mean really, really scratch. You know, if there's going to be carrots in there, then Euclid will grow his own carrots. In fact, you might say that Euclid is not so interested in cooking at all, even though a proof is like a recipe. Euclid is like a cookbook author who doesn't like cooking and he has no interest in feeding anyone. Instead, he's more like a chemist who is analyzing the molecular composition of foods. His recipes are not meant as a practical uh, cooking guide, but as an analysis or what the core ingredients of the dish are if you deconstruct the recipe as far as you possibly can. So that's the idea of reading backwards again. Euclid isn't really interested in making Pythagorean theorem soup. He's interested in starting with Pythagorean theorem soup and taking it apart in the lab, putting it on the Bunsen burner. You know, different ingredients at different boiling points and you can carefully separate them uh, into their molecular components. There was already... Uh, plenty of uh, geometry before Euclid, if theorems are like food, then everybody was already well-fed, so to speak. Everyone already had their favorite dishes. Neither they nor Euclid were looking to replace traditional menus. What Euclid is bringing to the table is not new food, but a refined theoretical perspective that stands apart from actual cooking in this metaphor. And this idea of reading Euclid backwards is also related to a famous anecdote recorded about Thomas Hobbes, 17th century philosopher. Here's the, how this story goes about Hobbes that you have perhaps heard. He was 40 years old before he looked on geometry, which happened accidentally. Being in a gentleman's library, Euclid's elements lay open, and it was the 47th proposition of Euclid's element, the Pythagorean theorem. He read the proposition. By God, said he, this is impossible. So he read the demonstration of it, which referred him back to such a proposition, which proposition he read, that referred him back to another, which he also read, and so on, that at last he was demonstratively convinced of that truth. This made him in love with geometry. So it's interesting that this story uh, that about uh, Hobbes, that in fact Hobbes ended up reading Euclid backwards, 
by accident, as it were, the book just happened to lay open uh, at that particular page when he stumbled upon it. Precisely what I recommended, in fact, as a deliberate strategy. Start with the Pythagorean theorem, work your way back. And although I would say, according to this story, it doesn't really uh, seem that Hobbes appreciated the point that the way I described it. Maybe uh, Hobbes, he would have just as well could read the book forwards and he would have had the same experience maybe in terms of falling in love with geometry as far as that uh, anecdote goes. But uh, it, the fact of the matter is that uh, Hobbes fell in love with geometry by reading it backwards. Other people have had the same experience reading it forwards. Bertrand Russell, who was another famous philosopher uh, centuries later, he read Euclid the conventional way, starting at the beginning, and he still found it, as he later said, as dazzling as first love. I had not imagined there was anything so delicious in the world. So Bertrand Russell, he was 11 at the time. Hobbes was 40 when he stumbled upon Euclid. They lived almost three centuries apart. So uh, these anecdotes they speak to the universality of Euclid's texts, young or old, forwards or backwards, conservative or socialist, in a society of cars or one of horses. The one thing these guys have in common is the love that Euclid uh, stirred up in them, the love of mathematics that is so universal. So that's all very nice. It kind of misses the point, though, in terms of what I tried to argue, that was the goal of Euclid's elements. What Hobbes and Russell fell in love with was the idea of geometrical proof, it seems. So historically, those epiphanies are better associated with the pre-Euclidean period. We discussed Thales before. There were plenty of others in the centuries between him and Euclid. When you read Euclid, by all means, do fall in love. Be seduced, like so many others have been, by the beauty of geometry and mathematics. But also, keep in mind that these charms are only part of the greatness of Euclid. Euclid's elements can be as good a vehicle as any to have that epiphany of the beauty of mathematics. But to Euclid and many of his readers, that was old news. Euclid wanted to do more than that. He didn't want to just show how cool it is to prove stuff, although that's lovely, but more than that, he wanted to explore the very essence of geometrical knowledge. What are its preconditions, the source of its certainty? Just as a chemist seeks to decompose any substance into the elements of the periodic table, so Euclid sought to find the periodic table of geometry, so to speak. He wanted to uncover the ultimate building blocks of this entire branch of knowledge. So that's my lesson one in how to read Euclid. Start at the back and keep this in mind, this theme of distillation into ultimate foundations. This is going to be a, the most key theme to Euclid. So I urge you to read Euclid that way. I'm not going to uh, go through the proof uh, here of the Pythagorean theorem. You'll have to follow along in your own uh, copy of the elements. I made my own edition. I added illustrations for all the steps of the proofs. So a joy to read, in my opinion, uh, all the more so with, uh, with more pictures. Uh, anyway, it's, it doesn't really translate into this medium here, so you can read that, uh, you can pursue it on your own. That, so I wanted to take this opportunity to uh, think about the origin of the Pythagorean theorem. Part of the uh, appeal of reading Euclid's elements is how it is embedded in many aspects of human culture and history. So in parallel with the, you know, thinking about Euclid or its philosophy and so on, I wanted to bring up these themes as well, these cultural connections. So the Pythagorean theorem has little to do with Pythagoras. It was discovered independently in several cultures, um, some of them long before Pythagoras. Never mind the name, that's not important. The, the more interesting question is, why were people interested in this theorem? Why would anybody want to calculate a bunch of hypotenuses? 
If you look in a modern geometry textbook, you won't find any good answers. The book will give you the formula, a squared, b squared, c squared, and ask you to apply it in all kinds of supposedly real-world cases, which are all fake and transparently ridiculous, how to calculate the diagonal of a field when you know the length of the sides. Why? When would you use such a thing? Why wouldn't you just measure the diagonal there if that's what you wanted to know? You know, who is this... Uh, it's this person who has supplied us with this information who is always measuring the wrong thing instead of the one you wanted to know, you know? It's a weird. Ladder problems. There's another uh, fake classic. The foot of the ladder is so-and-so far from the wall. The ladder is so-and-so long. Will it reach to such-and-such such a height? Maybe, for instance, the ladder of a fire truck to save someone from the burning building and stuff like that. It's not a very realistic scenario. You know, if you encountered this situation in the real world, wouldn't you just try it and see if it worked? Wouldn't that be just as easy as sitting around making calculations? Why would the distance from the wall to the foot of the ladder be some exact given number anyway? Couldn't you just move the car closer? Or, or, and so on. All of these things are not realistic uh, things. It doesn't make sense that people discovered the Pythagorean theorem because they were wrestling with practical problems like those ones of the fields and the ladders and all that. They would not have needed mathematics to do that. If they wanted to solve those kinds of problems, they could have used trial and error, direct measurements, and uh, there would have not have been any need for mathematical demonstrations. Unfortunately, if you try to find out what the real motivation was, ancient textbooks are as ridiculous as modern ones in this respect. So here's an example from a Chinese text from about the time of Euclid. A 10 feet high stem of bamboo broke in the wind. It broke into... Two straight pieces. One part is upright, perpendicular to the ground, the way bamboos usually grow, but the other part that broke off is still attached to the first part, but it tipped over and is now touching the ground. And at the, what used to be the highest point of the bamboo is now pointing, is touching the ground. And it's touching the ground at a point three feet away from the base of the, uh, of the stem. The question is, how high up the stem did the break occur? So you can calculate this with the Pythagorean theorem. Sure enough, it becomes a right-angled triangle, you know. Of course, there is no way anybody would ever do something so absurd in the real world. Just measure it if you want to know that thing. You just put the ruler there and check the thing. Uh, apparently, you already measured the distance along the ground and the full height of the bamboo before it broke. That information is somehow known. So why couldn't you just as well measure the distance that you're looking for, the, the distance of the... Uh, part that remains after the break. It doesn't make any sense that, you know, fake world applications. Here's another scenario that somehow claimed involves the Pythagorean theorem. The Greek island of Samos, there is an ancient tunnel which was dug, in fact, right in the lifetime of Pythagoras, so quite early in Greek history. And this tunnel is a marvelous thing. It's a tribute to the engineering skills of the Greeks. And it's still there today. The tunnel is over one kilometer in length through a big mountain. It was dug to supply the, the capital with the fresh water. So digging this tunnel, it was certainly a, a, a geometrical project. In fact, the, the walls still have letters on them, like the lettering of a geometrical diagram. Alpha, beta, gamma. Evidently, there, there, there was a plan of the tunnel on paper and then with points, with letters, just as in a Euclidean diagram. I mean, it wasn't literally on paper, of course. There was no paper back then, but uh, they uh, they drew it on uh, maybe a piece of wood or something. And then, as the 
digging process progressed, these letters were inscribed on the walls to keep track of how the actual tunnel corresponded to the geometrical plan on, on a, on a, uh, that was available as a diagram. So you have all these alpha, beta, and so on points uh, marked on the walls. So this is uh, well before Euclid, you know, ancient stuff. So this was all the more essential uh, to do this, have a, this geometric plan, because the tunnel had to be dug from both ends in order to complete it in half the time. If you have the labor, you can spare an equal number of workers on both sides, and that's going to be twice as fast, obviously, than if you're drinking from one. So the diggers, they had to be coordinated to ensure that they met in the middle, a highly non-trivial problem. You could easily have these guys uh, miss each other. They can't see each other, obviously. So how are you going to have them meet at the midpoint? Well, Greek geometers, of course, saw this flawlessly. They could, these guys knew what they were doing. In fact, at some point, the plan even had to change because the rock was becoming too porous. There was a risk that the tunnel would uh, collapse. So it was necessary to make a bend in the tunnel that took it more towards the core of the mountain for the, the harder rock side. So the geometers, they dealt with this flawlessly as well. They added a, a kind of a, an isosceles triangle, a shallow isosceles triangle in the diagram, you know. Each digging team had started out along straight lines that would have met in the middle. Then halfway through it, both teams were instructed to make a slight turn, and, and which uh, was specified with geometrical precision. So the whole tunnel has a kind of V-bent, uh, V-shape thing in the middle where they had to diverge because of the, the rock it became uh, untenable. So it still worked. The two digging teams did indeed meet as the geometers had predicted. It worked out with, uh, with only the slightest uh, deviation. So that's great stuff. But is it the Pythagorean theorem though? Let me play to you a clip that says, yes, it is. It's just the Pythagorean theorem was needed to build this tunnel. The clip comes from a History Channel documentary series called Engineering and Empire. Uh, let's listen to it. Here we go. Eupolinos dug tunnels from each side of the mountain until they met in the middle. To succeed, Eupolinos would have to be sure that each tunnel started at the same vertical height on opposite sides of the mountain. The tunnels also had to match up on a horizontal plane. Otherwise, they would pass each other like ships in the night. Amazing stuff, isn't it? By the way, the presenter of this documentary is Peter Weller, who is the actor who played Robocop in the classic 1987 uh, movie. So it turns out he's also a historian. Oh, well, that's uh, quite entertaining. It doesn't really matter, but okay. Uh, here's the part, though, where they claim that the Pythagorean theorem was involved in this uh, construction of the tunnel. Let's play that as well. By forging a path from the spring to the city in short perpendicular lines, Eupolinos could measure each small length in order to calculate two sides of a right triangle. With two known sides of the triangle, the hypotenuse became the path of the tunnel through the mountain. Right, so according to the History Channel, the plans for the tunnel was based on the Pythagorean theorem. The History Channel, they're not even taking into account, by the way, the alterations of these plants made midway through with the stuff that I discussed. They're just talking about the basic problem of uh, making a straight tunnel. So, yeah, I must say that I disagree with the History Channel's analysis, or Robocop's analysis, if you like. And the Tunnel of Samos, it's great geometry, but it's not the Pythagorean theorem. The way Robocop puts it in the documentary, it sounds as if the point was to calculate the length of the tunnel. 
that's the hypotenuse that Robocop was talking about in the clip that I played. Uh, of course, the, the real problem is uh, the coordination of the two digging teams in terms of direction, so they don't miss each other like ships in the night, as Robocop himself put it. So how is the length of the hypotenuse supposed to be useful for this? Knowing how long the tunnel is, it doesn't help you to determine the direction of digging, which is the crucial factor. So I don't think this tunnel stuff is a great example of real-world motivation for the Pythagorean theorem. We have to keep looking for where the ancient man would have had reason to discover and apply this theorem. Here's another such scenario. The Egyptians, did they use the Pythagorean theorem to build the pyramids? A classic claim. I would play another clip from another documentary series that says, yes, indeed, that's what they did. This uh, clip comes from The Story of Maths, a BBC documentary presented by Marcus de Satoy. Here's the clip. The most impressive thing about the pyramids is the mathematical brilliance that went into making them, including the first inkling of one of the great theorems of the ancient world, Pythagoras' theorem. In order to get perfect right-angled corners on their buildings and pyramids, the Egyptians would have used a rope with knots tied in it. At some point, the Egyptians realised that if they took a triangle with sides marked with three knots, four knots and five knots, it guaranteed them a perfect right angle. This is because three squared plus four squared is equal to five squared. So we've got a perfect Pythagorean triangle. Okay, so the theorem involved here it's not the Pythagorean theorem itself, but the converse of the Pythagorean theorem. Proposition 48 in Euclid, that's from the relationship between the sides, you can infer that the angle must have been the right angle rather than the other way around. You start at the right angle, you calculate the sides, that's how we usually... Anyway, so in terms of historical evidence, we don't really know if the Egyptians did this stuff or not. Did they know the 345 Pythagorean triple? Maybe. It's plausible that they knew this. There is very little documentary evidence from way back then. Uh, we can't really say for sure. You can't believe anything just because Marcus de Satoy said it in a BBC documentary. She's just uh, clowning around. But let's see if we think about it, you know, uh, does it make any sense? I used to be skeptical about this, you know. I've come to think that maybe it's not so bad, actually. The, the standard formulation, the one used by Marcus de Satoy as well, is in terms of a rope that has... Uh, 3 plus 4 plus 5 equally spaced knots uh, you know, uh, tied into it. I think that formulation is quite silly. It seems to me very complicated to get the knots uh, just right, spaced, equally spaced on the, on the rope, and then, yeah, well, it seems just very impractical. You don't really need one triangular rope, though, to make this stuff work. Instead, you can use three separate ropes of lengths 3, 4, and 5. That's easy to make. Uh, then, if you need to make a right uh, triangle, you stretch the three rope and the four ropes along the uh, intended sides, and you check if the five rope fits between the endpoints. You know, so you have one guy holding the end of the three rope and one guy holding the end of the four rope, and you're stretching the five guy and see if it fits. If it doesn't work, then you tell the guy who holds the end of the four rope to move a little bit, you know, left or right until it lines up well so that the end point of the, the diagonal fiber rope uh, you know, fits in there like a hypotenuse. Even though I used to be a skeptic, I have to say that uh, if I had to build a pyramid, I would probably go with this method now because it seems pretty good to me, especially 
if you consider the scale of the project to building a pyramid, the, the base of the pyramid is enormous. You would use ropes with lengths, well, there would be three, four, and five, not three, four, five meters or three, four, five feet or anything, but a big unit, 30 meters, 40 meters, 50 meters. For example, the, the ratio, of course, needs to be three, four, five. It could be in any unit of length. So the longer the ropes, the less significant measurement errors become. So that makes the method really uh, very viable for making right angles at that scale. So let me read to you a quote here from the book uh, Euclid's Window by Leonard Lodinov. I thought it was quite funny and it's related to this, so I figured why not uh, tell you about it. Here's how he puts it. Picture a windswept desolate desert to date, 2580 BC. The architect has laid out a papyrus with the plans of his structure. His job was easy. Square base, triangular faces, and oh yeah, it has to be 480 feet high and made of solid stone blocks weighing over two tons each. And you were charged with overseeing the completion of the structure. Sorry, no laser sight, no fancy service instruments at your disposal, just some wooden rope. As many homeowners know, making the foundation of a building or the perimeter of even a simple uh, patio using only a carpenter square and measuring tape is a difficult task. In building this pyramid, just a degree off from the true and thousands of tons of rocks, thousands of person years later, hundreds of feet in the air, the triangular faces of your pyramids miss, forming not an apex but a sloppy four-pointed spike. The pharaohs worshipped as gods with armies who cut the phalluses of enemy dead just to help them keep count. They were not the kind of all-powerful deities you would want to present with a crooked pyramid. Applied Egyptian geometry became a well-developed subject. So that's the end of the quote. Uh, that's quite a comical way of putting it, but the, the point is well taken. I think, indeed, it does make some sense, this whole thing, you know, that the historical and societal context, the mathematics available at that time, the need to make exact right angles, the methods for doing so using the string and the Pythagorean triple, all of that stuff is really quite plausible in the end. In my opinion, it's hardly very plausible that they could have uh, discovered the Pythagorean theorem this way, though, by starting with the problem of making right angles. You know, that, uh, that once you know the Pythagorean theorem, you can say, well, by the way, that gives us a way of understanding right angles, but hardly the other way around, you know. If you're saying, how should I make a right angle? Oh, I know, I, I think up the Pythagorean theorem first, and then I use that, you know. That doesn't really make any sense. But anyway, the Egyptians may very well have known the three, four, five special case of the converse Pythagorean theorem, and, and they may very well have used it to make right angles. We don't know for sure, but it makes some sense contextually. Here's another uh, proposal, possible origins of the Pythagorean theorem, uh, which is more geared towards explaining how somebody could have come up with uh, the desire to prove the thing in the first place, which is not really... Uh, so uh, the, the Egyptian story doesn't really account for that because it's so hands-on, so engineering-oriented, practice-oriented. What would be more theory-oriented reasons to prove the theory, prove a general theorem, general formula? Well, the, the second proposal that I will consider does answer that question. So this is, comes from uh, Van der Waarden's book, uh, Geometry and Algebra in Ancient Civilizations. Van der Waarden, he proposes that the original motivation for the discovery of the Pythagorean theorem was related to eclipses, calculating the duration of a lunar eclipse. So indeed, the astronomy was important to many ancient people, you know, the Stonehenge, Maya temples were aligned with solstices, etc. 
So people cared a lot about the sky back then. Eclipses were a big deal. Probably they were often seen as having some kind of uh, theological significance, some kind of omen and stuff like that. And they were also scientifically important for exact uh, calendar keeping. Eclipses are, are essential to keep track of the length of the year, the length of the month, and stuff like that. So uh, what do eclipses have to do with the Pythagorean theorem? Uh, mathematically, this uh, reconstruction that van der Waren has offered is uh, very neat indeed. It is a lot of fun to use in a geometry class. I highly recommend it. Whether it's historically accurate, well, that's not a story. But let's look at the uh, uh, let's look at the mathematics of it because it's pretty. So a lunar eclipse occurs when the moon passes through the shadow cast by the Earth. The Earth's shadow. It's about twice the size of the moon at the at the distance where the moon is passing through the. The shadow is twice as big as the moon. So the moon is approaching this kind of dark spot. It enters it and it keeps moving through it and then it comes out at the other side. The whole thing takes maybe an hour or two. It's different, you know, different eclipses. And so we can predict in advance how long a particular lunar eclipse is going to last. The determining factor is whether the path of the moon goes right through the middle of the Earth's shadow or if, whether it cuts across its sort of off-center which would make its path shorter. The moon's orbit, it's uh, uh, complicated, it's different each time. The relation between the moon's orbit and its position in relation to the Earth, it's, uh, that's a complicated business. Sometimes the moon is coming in a bit high, sometimes a bit low, and we can tell which, what's in any given uh, approach of the moon, we can uh, relate to... Uh, how it is its relative position this time around by comparing it with the uh, with the stars. And so this means that the the, the problem of calculating the, uh, the duration of an eclipse comes down to calculating the length of a line cutting through a circle. A line that cuts through a circle, not necessarily through the middle. You know, draw a circle on a piece of paper, put the ruler down, and cut right through it somewhere, wherever, not through the. Yeah, and that how long is that? It is uh, an assumption in these calculations that the moon's speed is constant uh, throughout the eclipse. So the duration of the eclipse is determined by how big of a piece of the segment of the moon's path is in the circular shadow cast by the Earth. So that becomes indeed a Pythagorean theorem problem. You can picture it like this. You draw a circle as, which represents the shadow cast by the Earth. You draw a line cutting through the circle, not through the middle, but wherever through the circle, and this is, uh, represents the path of the moon. And uh, we want to know the length of this segment that is inside the circle. That's what determines the duration of the eclipse, determines how long it will, the moon needs to be inside the shadow. So take this segment that is contained within the circle and find its midpoint. Connect the midpoint to the center of the circle, this is a known length because it corresponds to how far off-center the moon was in its approach, which we could determine by looking at the moon's position in relation to the stars. So this is a known uh, quantity, the distance from the midpoint of the segment to the center of the circle. This was known before the eclipse began. This is a, a given side, as it were. Now, let's add one more line to our diagram the line from the center of the circle to the point where the moon's path enters the circle. So, uh, are you visualizing it? That line is, of course, a radius of the circle. It goes from the midpoint to a point on the circumference. 
which is known because the size of the Earth's shadow is known. So that that's the second side of the triangle that is known. So you see why it becomes a Pythagorean theorem problem. There are two knowns, uh, two known sides of a right angle triangle, in fact. And so and the sort length is the remaining side. To know the length of the segment of the circle is the that's the third side of this triangle. Beautiful. Can this be how ancient man discovered the Pythagorean theorem? Well, this hypothesis has one thing going for it, which is that the salt quantity cannot be measured directly in advance of the eclipse. You genuinely need the Pythagorean theorem to do this calculation. It's not one of those fake ones, you know, with the bamboo or the diagonal, the field and all that stuff. You, you could just measure the thing you want instead of measuring the sides you don't want and then calculating the one you want, you know, like those fake textbook ones with the ladders and all that uh, fake stuff. You know, uh, it, so this moon thing it's it's really different th than that it's, it's a case where you genuinely need a Pythagorean theorem so that's great, mathematically very satisfying unfortunately the hypothesis is not very plausible historically so in the Babylonian tradition, mathematics came long before astronomy serious mathematical astronomy like this stuff with the detailed eclipse calculations and so on that was a preoccupation of the second flowering of ancient Babylonian mathematics which comes a thousand years after the first golden age of Babylonian mathematics. But already the older period had excellent mathematics, including something like the Pythagorean theorem. In fact, uh, one of the most famous old Babylonian clay tablets uh, states the ratio between the side and the diagonal of a square. So it's, that's effectively a, a numerical approximation of the square root of two, in other words, that is inscribed on this famous clay tablet the numerical value of this uh, tablet is uh, very nearly accurate to six decimal places. Very accurate indeed, in other words. So it's, uh, here's a way of indicating its accuracy. Suppose you used it to compute the diagonal of a square with a side of 100 meters, so that's like a football field or something. At the diagonal of a field like that, you can calculate it with the Babylonian approximation, with this ta tablet that's almost 4,000 years old, if you take its value for the square root of 2, calculate the diagonal of a football field from the side, you obtain an answer that is accurate to within an error of 1 millimeter. The error is less than 1 millimeter. That's remarkable stuff. More than a thousand years before Babylonian priests became obsessed with eclipses for the sake of ensuring these calendric accuracy of rituals and all that stuff, that they cared a lot about eclipses later. So the mathematically pleasing hypothesis about the Pythagorean theorem being discovered to calculate eclipse durations. Well, it doesn't really fit the historical record, unfortunately. All that math stuff came a thousand years earlier. So what can we conclude from all of these examples? I think it's safe to say that practical need was never the main driver of mathematics that goes even a little bit beyond the basics. The Pythagorean theorem was discovered because people were fascinated by mathematics for its own sake, not because they needed to calculate stuff. The Chinese didn't need to know the breaking points of bamboos. The Babylonians didn't need to know the diagonal of a football field with a millimeter accuracy. They were fascinated by the power of mathematical reason to uncover hidden relationships. And that's why they explored these things, not because they needed specific answers to specific problems. And this is also how we should read Euclid, for that matter. The proof of the Pythagorean theorem is not about proving that the theorem is true. It's about exploring the basis for this knowledge. Mathematics was always explored for this reason. 
discovering mathematics was like discovering magic. It impresses us with this powerful force that can do incredible things. We want to understand it. How is this possible? What makes this magic tick? It's so unlike anything else we're familiar with. It's like a portal to a divine realm. We feel this spiritual imperative to understand what's going on in this mystery of mathematics. Already the ancient civilizations started along this path, exploring mathematics for the sake of exploring what kind of knowledge it is and its underpinnings. If mathematics is like magic, then Euclid's Elements is not a book of spells. It is a scientific investigation of how there can be such a thing as magic at all. Or to use uh, another metaphor, we have to dissect mathematics like an alien corpse to discover the secrets of its mysterious inner workings. The Pythagorean theorem is the alien. It's a weird thing that seems to have superhuman powers, a mysterious entity. Euclid's proof, it is not a recipe to give you alien abilities. Instead, it is the result of his thorough dissection of an alien that he found in the wild. So let's read Euclid this way, as an exploration into the inner mechanisms, the heartbeat of these strange entities, these superhuman theorems that have impressed mankind with their seemingly magical divine aura for many thousands of years. More Euclid stuff in that spirit uh, coming up. Thank you.